Hello everyone and welcome back to the Great Women Artist podcast. Last week we interviewed the fantastic artist Anna Wayant and today we speak to novelist and Zen Buddhist priest Ruth Azeki. But before we get to this fantastic conversation, I am delighted to say that this episode is supported by Ocular. Ocular provides online access to the best of contemporary art. You can visit ocular.com to follow the world's best galleries and artists, as well as read informed articles about the contemporary art world. You can also follow Ocular on social media platforms like Instagram via at ocular.art. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most important, pioneering and impactful writers and novelists working today, Ruth Azeki. She is the author of four novels, My Year of Meats from 1998, All Over Creation, 2003, a tale for the time being, which was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2013 and was the winner of the LA Times Book Prize, and more recently, The Book of Form and Emptiness, for which she won the Women's Prize for Fiction, an extraordinary novel centred on the 14-year-old Benny, who, after his father dies, begins to hear voices with other objects in a magical realist sense taking on other roles to speak. Azeki's work is powerful, all-encompassing. It breaks boundaries and reinvents storytelling and often melds ancient ideas with contemporary ones, looking at how they relate to technology, religion, politics or pop culture. In addition to her writing work, Azeki is also a Zen Buddhist priest, ordained in 2010 and a role that has influenced her two most recent novels. And she's also a filmmaker, hailed for her 1995 work, Harving the Bones, that looks at three generations of Ruth's maternal family history from Japan to Hawaii and to a suburb in Connecticut. But aside from this, it is also Azeki's non-fiction work that I highly admire, in particular her 2016 book, Time Code of a Face, a part memoir, part experiment, influenced by a Harvard art historian that saw her sit in front of a mirror for three hours and examine her face as she traces each line, each mark, each crease and each feature back to a story from her past, which I cannot wait to get into in this episode. So Ruth Azeki, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you so much, Katie. That was lovely. And I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm so well. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's really such an honor to speak to you. You are one of my favorite writers and thinkers. And I was lucky enough to meet you and hang out with you at the Jaipur Literary Festival earlier this year in India. That was fun. We had <laughs> fun, didn't we? <laughs> it was amazing. Amazing. The world's greatest school trip, I like to think. It of it is. Oh, my goodness. It certainly is. <laughs> 
And today, as well as discussing art, we will delve into the lives of women writers who fascinate you, influence you, and who have shaped you. But I want to start with the art, and in fact, objects, which are core to your story in the book of Form and Emptiness, where they almost become like characters as they take on speaking roles with Benny's mother, Annabelle. So I'd love to start by asking you, what attracts you to writing about art or objects? Objects, yes. Well, I I, I guess... A lot of things. I was inspired to write about objects. It really goes back to a Zen koan or teaching story, which asks the question, do insentient beings speak the Dharma? In other words, can insentient beings, objects, things, teach us about reality? And so this was always something that, that it was a question that interested me because I've always felt that Objects, and certainly art objects, have, a well, in Walter Benjamin's terminology, an aura, right? A power, a kind of a vibrancy that animates them. And so this quality of sort of an animated spirit is something that is almost kind of commonsensical in culture like Japan's, which is based in an animist tradition, religious tradition of Shinto, right? And so this is something that going back and forth between Japan and America since I was a child, I was always curious about. In Japan, objects have spirits, right? And so you can be walking along the street and pass a little, an old tree, for example, and there'll be a little shrine in front of it. And honoring the spirit of that tree. Japanese scrolls from the Middle Ages are filled with these beautiful illustrations of animated umbrellas, for example, straw sandals or religious mala beads or tea kettles, teapots. And they're always getting up to all sorts of mischief. And the scrolls are really quite fanciful and beautiful. And so the folklore too is filled with these stories. And it's just something that I think I kind of grew up with. It also explains why so much anime and manga come out of Japan, out of that culture. That is totally fascinating. I mean, I just, I love how art and objects can tell a story as well. And I'm aware that part of the influence for writing your most recent novel actually stemmed from the death of your own father. When you were doing these everyday tasks like laundry, he would come and speak to you. I mean, what is the impact objects and art have had on you and your writing? Oh my goodness, that's an interesting question. I think really, I grew up with this sense that objects were really special, were really important. And I think it's because, first of all, I'm an only child. I did not grow up with family nearby. So it was really just me and my mother and father growing up in a suburb of New Haven, Connecticut. But the house was filled with objects and in particular artwork that my grandfather had done, my Japanese grandfather. I had met him only once when I was three years old. In fact, this is my first memory as a little human being. The memory goes like this. Uh, My Japanese grandparents had come to visit us in New Haven and I was sent to wake them up in the morning and uh, they were sleeping in my parents' bedroom, which already was a big deal because they had displaced the two most important people in the world, my parents, right? (laughs) And the memory starts here that I remember reaching up with my hand to reach the doorknob and turning the doorknob and opening it into the room. And there beside the bed, my grandfather was sitting on the floor cross-legged with his eyes closed, rocking back and forth. First of all, this was astonishing to me because in 1959, grown-ups didn't sit on the floor 
not in my household anyway. <laughs> and at that moment, he must have heard me and he opened his eyes. And because he was sitting on the floor, we were at eye level, right? Because he was sitting on the floor and I was three years old. We were at <laughs> eye level and I remember our eyes making contact. And I was startled and a little bit scared and went running back out to tell my mother about this amazing thing that I had just seen and eventually learned that he was meditating. And I think my mother described it as doing breathing exercises. But in any case, that's the first memory I have. Now, my grandfather was a really remarkable man. He was a poet and a photographer and an artist as well. And so our house was filled with paintings that he had done, calligraphy, thousands, literally thousands of photographs that he had taken in Hawaii, which is where he was living at the time. He had immigrated to Hawaii in 1896 when he was 16 years old. He was born in 1880. Whoa. And, yeah, and immigrated in 1896 at the age of 16. And he worked on a sugarcane plantation. He was an indentured servant and eventually paid off his contract and then got a job at the post office and eventually developed this photography hobby and became the first official photographer for Volcanoes National Park. And so this is how he made his living after that. It was also what led to his demise, really, because he had a photography studio that was right outside the entrance to Volcano Park and also right next to the Kilaue military camp. And he had been involved in various photography projects commissioned by the park. And it was to photograph the bombing of Mauna Loa, the big volcano, when Mauna Loa erupted and the lava started heading towards Hilo, which is a big city. And so the U.S. military decided that the way to divert the lava flow was to bomb it. And my grandfather was commissioned to photograph the bombing mission. Years later, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, this evidence was used against him. It was considered a treasonous activity. It was part of the evidence used to sentence him to military prison in Santa Fe. So it was a little bit more intense than the internment because it was a Justice Department camp. And so he was arrested and convicted and sent to this military prison for the duration of the war and lost all of his property and lost the studio, lost everything. So this was a story that I had grown up with and had grown up with my grandfather's images. And my mother always used to say that things skipped a generation and that she had no visual art talent at all or writing skills, which actually wasn't true, but, and that I had inherited all of my, my grandfather's love for the arts as well as for writing. Wow. But what I love about that though, is this idea that objects can tell these stories or can tell us about the world or about people who have since gone. I mean, that kind of power of objects. I mean, how did you then see his work after that? And you mentioned you only met him once. I mean, how did seeing his work kind of connect you with that, with him? I think it was because I was so familiar with his images. I knew his face through photographs. I knew his aesthetics through the objects that he left behind. He also made furniture out of these incredibly beautiful gnarled pieces of wood. So we had this bench and these beautiful lamps with tapa pounded bark lampshades. And it was a very particular kind of aesthetic, odd and unusual form from nature. And so this was something that I just, I grew up with. I mean, I remember there was this little box filled with polished stones 
that had belonged to him. And these stones had been sliced and polished and mounted on pieces of cardboard. And they were geodes and agates and malachite, stones like that. And I remember playing with these when I was a little kid and thinking that they were very precious. I remember thinking I was terribly rich because I had this <laughs> box full of gems. And then later, my mother told me the story, which was that these were stones that he had collected in the desert in Santa Fe. And they must have had some kind of rock polishing factory in the prison camp where the prisoners made these stones for the tourist trade. It was part of their work detail. And so these were stones that my grandfather had collected and polished and then brought home with him and ended up in our house in my bedroom in New Haven. But it was a story that I hadn't heard until quite a bit later. And that's really, I think, when I had this sense that everything has a story. Everything has a story. And if only these things could speak, right? If only objects could speak, they could tell us their stories. And I think that was really one of the inspirations for the Book of Form and Emptiness. I think that is just the most, the sort of power of not only sort of imagination, but the kind of, I mean, I go to a museum mm -hmm. and I look at all these people and especially if it's a portrait or something, it's like all these neighbors or people I never knew, but somehow we're having this conversation. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I think that's the beautiful thing about museums is that you can go to a museum and you can just whip through the galleries. I mean, you get something from it, of course, but if you can go and sit with one work of art, whatever it is, it doesn't even matter. And just sit there with it for a long period and converse with it and listen to what it's trying to tell you. I think it. a lot of this has to do with my fascination for time as well, that objects are time beings and they persist through time. They live a lot longer than we do, right? We're just these yeah. ephemeral fleeting creatures, but objects really persist, right? They have longevity, right? Totally. And also the power of something. I'm thinking of an amazing British artist called Lubaina Hamid, who often works with objects. And she often puts objects next to each other from completely different times or cultures or backgrounds. Or And then actually what dialogue that can create as well. It's like when you put two artworks next to each other, somehow they're in dialogue with each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel that way about books. I feel that all books are in conversation with each other, right? And so that was one of the, again, ideas behind the book narrator in The Book of Form and Emptiness. The Book of Form and Emptiness being narrated by The Book of Form and Emptiness, right? Narrating itself into being. But in conversation with so many others, in conversation with Walter Benjamin, Jorge Luis Borges, and Marie Kondo, so many yeah, others, yeah. right? <laughs> I love that. I also, the role of objects too. I mean, I'm sitting here at my desk in Western Massachusetts and I'm looking <laughs> at a little snow globe and it's the snow globe that is in the Book of Form and Emptiness. And the way it got there is I knew I was going to be writing about objects in the book. I knew that Benny's mother, Annabelle, was a bit of a hoarder. And so I knew I was going to have to come up with objects to put in the book. And, you know, if left to my own devices, what would I put in there? I'd put in like a pencil or something, maybe something that's not so interesting. Anyway, I made a rule for myself that when an interesting object entered my life, through whatever means, I would put it in the book and see what happened. So my friend came back from a trip to the Bahamas and she brought me back this little snow globe and inside the snow globe is a little sea turtle. And there's a bigger sea turtle on the outside of the globe. When you shake it, of course, it fills with sparkles. <laughs> and I was delighted. I love sea turtles and I love snow globes. And so I gave it to Annabelle. 
Right. And then before I knew it, Annabelle was collecting snow globes. And then she was on eBay and she was bidding for snow globes. And then there's another character, the Aleph, who she's an artist and she started making catastrophic snow globes, disaster snow globes. So this the whole image of snow globes started to kind of proliferate and expand its semantic field. And it also became a kind of symbol for Annabelle's relationship with her son, Benny, because in a way, Annabelle is kind of stuck on the outside of the globe, looking in at Benny, who is like living his own kind of sparkling life inside. And so all of this was fine and good, and I was having a wonderful time. Of course, it meant that I had to spend a lot of time on eBay looking at snow globes too, (laughs) right? And I was having a wonderful time with this. Okay, so I bought a few snow globes too, just because I needed to understand how eBay works. It's important (laughs) to do this research. At the same time, um, I was also deeply engrossed in rereading a lot of Walter Benjamin. And the reason for that was because another friend of mine knew that I was writing about libraries and reminded me of Walter Benjamin's essay, Unpacking My Library. So I started reading that. And of course, it was perfect for the book. And so Walter Benjamin sort of became a guiding spirit for the book. And I was reading basically everything I could easily get my hands on that Walter Benjamin had written. And uh, one of the things that I started to read was his correspondence with Theodore Adorno. And this was where it really was flabbergasting, because in reading a letter from Adorno to Walter Benjamin, Adorno mentioned Walter Benjamin's collection of snow globes. And and so when things like that happen, you're just gobsmacked, right? I mean, you just have this sense that, yes, I'm on the right track. This is a good sign. This is a sort of conversation between fiction and reality and the contemporary and history and everything. I mean, how did you feel about about that he also did that? Yeah, I know. I just I just burst out laughing. You know, (laughs) I mean, what else can you do? You know? You're sort of like bound to Walter Benjamin by some kind of magnet. That's right. That's right. That's right. You know, it's one of these things that it sounds so woo-woo to say, but it really feels like, okay, you know, the universe right, is telling me that I'm on the right track. This is just the universe giving me a little bit of a, you know, sort of, yes, dear, keep going. Amazing. I know, amazing, amazing, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm flabbergasted. Um, But I want to talk to you about looking. I mean, you are obviously both a writer and a Zen Buddhist priest. And I wonder what the impact of the skills of both of those roles have when you look at a piece of art. Hmm. Well, I think that my training in observation really came when I was working for film and television. And that's where I really had to learn to be a good observer, because obviously it's a visual medium. I had been interested when I was in high school, a really long time ago, in video. <laughs> Back in the olden days, we were using porta pack cutting videotape slicing it with a razor blade and taping it back together again. So I I think I started to get interested in visual media back then and then took a kind of detour into literary stuff. But then when I was in Japan, I started getting very involved in visual media again. And it was really ancient Japanese visual media. I got involved in no drama. So I was studying no dance and chanting and also mask carving. So I spent several years studying with a master mask maker in Kyoto. 
Um, and I was also studying, you know, the other Zen arts like Ikebana, for example, flower arrangement. Again, I think this was something that I tie back to my grandfather. I was very attracted to Japanese aesthetics. And so when I found myself living in Japan and having access to these wonderful teachers, I started studying. And then from there, I ended up moving back to New York. I got involved in the film world really by accident, mainly because I needed a job and, and there weren't a lot of jobs for no mask carvers in Manhattan in 1980 <laughs> something. I know, right? Yeah. So I ended up getting a job. I could draw a little bit as well. And when I was in Japan, I published a couple of textbooks and did the illustration for these oh, well, textbooks. I yeah. I didn't know about your illustration past. Yeah, well, it's not really. I mean, that's such an exaggeration to say. I didn't have any money, so I drew the pictures myself. And then I actually did do a little occasionally would get a little gig drawing something. Anyway, it was it was really not a big deal, but I put it this way, I could draw a little bit. So I got a job as a storyboard artist on a film called Matt Riker Mutant Hunt. It was a a very, very low-budget B-movie, not going to be released in theaters. It was going to go straight to video. And they needed a storyboard artist. And so they hired me because I was basically cheap. So I started attending all of the production meetings. And about a week before the shoot was about to start, we hadn't done a single storyboard. And the director suddenly realized that he didn't have an art director. And he looked around the table and he pointed at me because I was the only person who wasn't doing anything. And he said, you be the art director. What's your name? You be the art director. And I gasped and said, well, I've never actually been on a film set before, so I don't really know what it is that an art director does. And he said, don't worry about it, we'll tell you. And he did. And so I art directed Matt Riker Mutant Hunt and then went on to a, a short career of as an art director and production designer doing films like Breeders and Necropolis. So I ended up, they, they hired a very good assistant for me, a woman named Marina Zerko, who's a brilliant, brilliant artist. And uh, so Marina basically helped me through that. I mean, she told me what to do. And, um, and so then we formed a company, Medusa Studios, and we traded jobs, but the studio did production design for commercials and TV. And so we did that for several years. And it was really interesting. It was just interesting work. And then from there, I ended up moving more into Japanese television because I could speak Japanese. And so I started doing art department work for Japanese television and Japanese commercials. So anyway, it was just, it was interesting. And I think it was really during the years that I worked in film and television that I learned to observe. But also, it's so interesting because you have had so many different lives in a way, you know, so many <laughs> yeah. different professions, but that's amazing. And you all this sort of accumulated and actually you are a storyteller. And it's so interesting that actually it began with a visual medium and actually sort of translated into words. I mean, when you are sort of sitting down to write a novel or a story or something, is it a very visual mind that you do have? And that's, uh, that's interesting you should ask that because, yes, I also started to do a lot of my own shooting. Yeah. And so when I do sit down to write, I have a practice whereby I really, in a way, become a camera. And I imagine the location that I'm going to be writing about. And then I figure out the shot. So I'll sort of in my imagination move into the room or, I mean, I remember this in particular from my first novel, My Year of Meats, where I was describing um, you know, 
feedlots where cattle are raised. And I remember yeah. sort of in my imagination going into a feedlot and figuring out where to set up the tripod, putting the camera down, and then starting to pan around looking for the right angle, the right frame, you know, wh- how is this shot going to look? And um, it was great because it I'd never written a novel before. I didn't know how to write a novel, but I did know how to shoot. And so this just gave me something very concrete that I could do, a way of entering a scene. And I realized, too, that writing a novel was really not all that dissimilar to shooting and editing film but you do it at once. You do it at the same time. And so in a way, it's much less cumbersome and it's much lighter, right? And and easier in that sense than than actually having to, you know, to shoot footage and then go to the editing room, however, and then actually piece it together. And you could do the whole thing. And this was really great because I remember earlier in my life when I was in college, for example, thinking that I would really like to write a novel. I always wanted to be a novelist. Ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to write novels, but I didn't know how to do it. And the biggest challenge for me was how to move a story through time. You know, you have a character come in on one side of a location and you know that the action is going to be happening on the other side of the room. And so because I didn't know how to move a story through time, I would literally describe the character walking across the room, you know? I didn't realize that you could just cut, right, from one to another if you changed your camera angle, right? And so this was something I learned in the editing room. And, And, you know, it took me years to get into the editing room. But once I did get into the editing room, that's where I learned how to tell stories. Oh my goodness, that's so cool! I mean, it's amazing. But I mean, I mean, also what I'm sensing in a lot of this as well is this idea of sort of meditation and this sort of you know this deep concentration or this kind of ability, like you said, with the camera, you know, to actually sort of transport yourself. I have to, I have to sort of confess that I, I, I don't meditate, and I, and I wish I did. I'm so sorry, but I'm totally fascinated by it. And I, and I have tried, but I haven't reached it yet. Well, but... yeah, it, 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 it is no sin not to meditate. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know, I, I probably <laughs> no, should. No, 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 no. You know, I mean, the, the thing too is that we have such sort of funny ideas about meditation. You know, it's about emptying the mind or calming the mind or, you know, all of these different things. I, I don't think that's what meditation is at all. I think meditation is simply kind of waking up your body and your senses to what is going on in the moment and then not doing anything, just observing. It goes back to the observation again. Yeah. And so what I just described, this way of moving into a scene with this imaginary camera, you know, that is using and taking advantage of the sense gate of the eyes, the optical senses, right? But The wonderful thing about writing is that it's not purely a visual medium. You can use all of your senses. So it's like you have a camera of the ear and a camera of the skin and a camera of all of these are instruments of the body, physical instruments, right, that that can observe, that can record, and that can be used in order to describe and bring to life a location or a scene or a character, right? And so that's what this practice has evolved into. I think that my years of meditation training, um, and I didn't really notice that this was changing, but it just, you know, I, I started to realize that what I do now is I move into an imaginary location that's, of course, in my mind, and then 
instead of setting up a tripod and a camera, what I do is I, I sort of put myself into the body-mind of a meditator, right, in that imaginary location, and I listen, and I observe with my eyes. I look, right, and I smell, I sniff, and I sort of notice what's, and, and I'm in the body-mind of my character, really, right? And so I'm kind of noticing what my character is noticing in her body, what's going on in her arms and legs and skin. Is she hot? Is she cold? You know, where is the light coming from? What taste is in her mouth? What has she just eaten? What's happening outside the room? You know, what kind of floor is she standing on? Is she barefoot? Just all of these kind of sensory details are the kinds of things that I'm noticing and then starting to write from that place. But I can imagine that, oh gosh, I hope I don't offend the artists or anyone listening to this because I'm not an artist or a mm. fiction writer. I wish I was both. But this sort of correlation between, you know, making art, writing, but also looking at art and writing a novel. And, and you, you say this really beautiful line that really stuck with me right at the end of Time Code of a Face. You say, you know, this is why we read novels, to see our reflections transform, to enter another's subjectivity, to wear another's face, to live inside another's skin. And it's such a sort of visceral visual bodily experience and I guess it just it, it, it sort of correlates this idea of how zen can teach us about experience in or looking at art because I'm also aware that you know you teach your students in creative writing to meditate in order to be able to write yes 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 absolutely I do because I think this is a really important skill the skill of being able to just sit quietly in the body with your senses all of your sense gates alert and aware and not be reactive, not do anything. You know, now eventually, of course, I do something. <laughs> I start to write. But the initial approach uh, is one of body-mind mindfulness, right? Uh, again, I want to take the emphasis off the mind because I think that the mind, well, I mean, this is interesting too. Okay, so in the West, we think of ourselves, as, we think of you know, humans, people as having five senses, right? And there's the kind of the idea of a sixth sense, which is in, you know, of intuition, but um, leaving that aside, in Buddhism, human beings have six senses, right? There's the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the skin, right? The sensory skin. Um, and then there's the mind. And the mind is considered to be a sense organ, just like the nose or just like the ears, right? Just like the tongue. And the sensations perceived by the mind are the sensations of thought and feeling, thought and emotion. And so what that does in a kind of brilliant way is to undermine Cartesian notions of the primacy of our mental faculties. And it just, it means that a thought is like a smell or a sound, right? Wow. It's, it's just something that comes and goes. And, and so you know, we tend to place more importance on it, especially on in the West, but really it's just another fleeting sensation. And I think there's something really beautiful about that. It's such a radical way of thinking about self, right? Thinking about who we are. And uh, yeah, anyway, I don't know what that has to do with art, no, but it, it seems it, it, important it, it, somehow. <laughs> it, 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 it totally is because also it's how we view an art, artwork as well. It's mm -hmm. how we feel in front of it and how we experience it. We experience it through our mind as well. Yes, that's right. That's right. That's and and, and yeah. it's the idea of, of sort of conversations with those characters yeah. or with those artists as well. That's the kind of world that we're building inside of our head with this physical object. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> You're blowing my mind, Ruth. I was so fascinated when you were writing about Zen Buddhism, yeah. this idea of impermanence being the first of three marks of its existence. Yeah. Everything changes nothing stays the same, which is what you write. I mean, how do you think Zen correlates to art? I mean, do you think there's some kind of affiliation between the impermanence of an image or how we experience art? Because also, I mean, what we were saying earlier, and I don't want to sort of complicate the question, but this idea that we are also impermanent beings and we see art, if I can say this in sort of simple terms, in the sense that nothing ever stays still because we are constantly growing and we're constantly impermanent. And I might look at an artwork when I'm 20 or when I'm 30 or I'm 40 and actually... does that make sense oh absolutely 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 (laughs) no I mean I really think of art and certainly literature as being collaborations through time and so as a maker I make a book and it's called the book of form and emptiness and I put it out there and it's a time being it is something that I can only make at that particular time that particular moment in my life it's an expression of the time being that I am during the however long it takes to make it right and so then I take this thing and I put it out into the world and it's an object and we think of it in the singular the book of form and emptiness it's one novel and it goes out into the world and then it's picked up and read by hopefully you know hopefully it's, it's, it's picked up and read by a lot of people around <laughs> many, the world many many people just... that's my hope right but what's interesting about that of course is that at that point it ceases to be a singular object right at that point it becomes a collaboration between me and every single person who reads it in other words it fractures it fragments yes. and splits into an array of to use you know the the language of physics of quantum physics it's a particle that then turns into an array right and this is what makes it alive this is what brings it to life and i think that's true for any kind of artwork or music or anything else that they're collaborative endeavors and so there is no singular thing called the book of form and emptiness it is simply this kind of moving changing dynamic process and that's really what impermanence the zen idea of impermanence and also the second of the three marks of existence, which is no self, right? The lack of a fixed self or identity, because there is no one thing called the book of form and emptiness. It is whatever it becomes when it's read by two people or by another person. And I think that's true for famous artwork. It appears to be an object and it is an object and it does have an identity. And it's, of course, Art is ephemeral too, as we know, but it persists through time until it doesn't. But it also becomes many, many things during its lifespan. I completely, completely love that. This idea that right now, as we're speaking, you know, there are probably hundreds, thousands of people around the world currently reading the book of form and emptiness and that idea that they're kind of all having a conversation with themselves and I think what's extraordinary is actually also then what happens afterwards and how that's you know that story also because you can't take everything in ever right and the sense that elements of that story exist in someone's mind forever as well right Right, right. And of course, we know what happens with memory. Memory is also dynamic, right? It's constantly changing. And so, you know, it's so funny, because sometimes I'll read a book that I haven't read for a while, and I'll be sure that there's something in that book. I'll remember it as, you know, (laughs) just being one of the most important things that I've ever read in my life. And then I'll be looking for it in the book. And I'll be like, wait a minute, I know it was here. Did I make that up? Yeah. 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 So it's just fascinating, right? Yeah. 
It really is. And I mean, I mean, how has sort of meditation and Zen Buddhism taught you how to look at art in a new light? Well, yeah, I think certainly I can say this, that meditation has taught me something about the power of patience. And this goes back to that lovely essay written by Jennifer Roberts, who was the professor at Harvard, who you mentioned in the introduction, who inspired me to write a Time Code of a Face. And she wrote this essay for, I think it was the Harvard Review, called The Power of Patience. And what she does is she gives her art history students the assignment to go to a museum and choose a work of art and to sit in front of it and observe it for three hours, right? And she chose three hours as in a fairly arbitrary way. She wanted it to be a little bit painful. And during that three hours, they are to sit there and observe the painting or whatever, the artwork, and also observe their observation. So it's a kind of meta-observation as well. So they're to observe the different observations that they have through that three-hour time period. Because, of course, the longer you sit and observe something, the more you see. And so the whole practice, the whole experience of observation changes over time. And that's the point of this exercise. And so I read this article. And to me, of course, immediately I thought meditation. You're watching your mind, right? And you're watching your body-mind respond to this um, you know, sometimes very painful long meditations, right? Where you're not really moving, you're just sitting and watching. And so that's what gave me the idea to, to write Time Code of a Face because um, I had agreed to write an essay about my face, which at the time seemed like a fun idea. But then when I actually sat down to do it, I, I suddenly realized, oh my God, I have to write like an essay about my face. I really don't <laughs> want to do this. And then I happened to run across Jennifer Roberts' essay and I thought, okay, well, this is a way, this gives me a structure. And then I can record my observations over a three-hour period and then I can write about those observations. So that's what I did. I basically took a mirror and put it on my um, little Zen altar. And I sat down in front of it for three hours and looked at my face and did exactly that, made a time log of my observations. <laughs> I mean, I first heard you speak about this on a panel about memoir. Yeah. I think you were with Edmund Duvall in January. And I remember just being completely blown away by this very sort of simple experiment, really. Rushed home back to England and bought the book. Yeah. And I've read it a few times and, and I love it for how it speaks to us. You know, it's full of expression, humor, honesty. You look at your face the way a lot of people do, you know, slightly embarrassed, surprised. You catch yourself in certain ways. But I just sort of love how you're sort of driving us around the atlas of your face while sort of reading interspersed segments from your childhood, your family history. Like we are sort of reading two memoirs at once, one that is built to the kind of physicality of something and the other one that's more internal. I mean, how was your experience writing this? Because also I have to say that since January, I have been meaning to take myself off to a gallery and do this experiment. Uh, yeah. I don't think I'm quite ready to do my face, but I, I would, I really want to do it, but somehow it's, it's so difficult. Yeah. I think I'm scared. Oh, well, you mean to do it in the gallery or to do it in front of a mirror? <laughs> well, well, both, both, but I yeah. keep meaning to do yeah. it. And I actually wanted to have done it by the time I spoke yeah. to you, but I still haven't done it, which I'll probably do it this week or something. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it is a very interesting exercise. I think you go through different phases um, as, as you're observing. Um, and certainly many of the phases involve 
extreme resistance to the exercise. You're sitting there in front of the mirror, or I imagine in front of the artwork too, and and just really resenting what you're, you know, resenting this, <laughs> the whole idea, you know. Um, but then eventually that fades, and you start to look at something else and notice something else. And so part of it is observing your own, the ebb and flow of your own resentment and resistance to that kind of deep observation. But then there are moments, I think, where you suddenly realize like, wow, I just noticed something that I would never, ever have noticed had I not been doing this. And that leads to a whole new area of inquiry and area of relationship with that object, whatever it might be. And I think at that moment, I mean, that certainly happened to me when I was doing this. And I I understood the value of the exercise. And I understood how impatient I am most of the time. And I also felt very grateful to Jennifer Roberts for having suggested this and really thought, just like you, wow, I should really do this more often. And then of course I don't, right? Because I'm too (laughs) impatient and I'm a very busy person. And yes, of course it's the power of patience. Exactly. 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 (laughs) So it's available on the internet. If you Google Jennifer Roberts, the power of patience, you can find the PDF of the article and it's really, it's wonderful. It's a great article. Yeah. Because I mean, that's the thing is that even if you look at a work for, gosh, this sounds terrible I'm so sorry but even just five minutes yeah. you know you start I know gosh I'm just terrible compared to you I'm sorry I've clearly got so much patience to work <laughs> on but even just you know giving yourself just a bit of time in front of an artwork how it can kind of unfold in front of you yeah. but I mean three hours is just kind of this mountain that's in the distance for me yeah. I'm going yeah. to do it but, but start, sorry start yes. slow start slow yeah. start with start with 10 minutes you know <laughs> and yeah. work your way up <laughs> And, and do you think this experience has impacted your looking at art? Um, I think it has. I, it never occurred to me that this was a way of doing it. It never occurred to me to try something like this. And and so now when I go to a gallery, I generally don't cover much ground. My favorite way of going to a museum or a gallery these days is to just find work that speaks to me and then to sit there with it for a longer time and not really try to run around. But I mean, I also have that same relationship to place when I travel. I don't like to cover a lot of ground. I like to find one or two places. I was in Venice recently and just like to find one or two places that are completely nondescript and not famous and just sit there, preferably with a spritz oh, yes. and a notebook, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. I mean, oftentimes when I'm on my own somewhere, I was just in America for a few months. And so sometimes I just sort of get a pen and paper and just sort of write about what was happening around me, which was, I don't know, just that as a sort of little exercise or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also what I love about, I mean, the book is so extraordinary and it's only small and I'd really recommend everyone to to get it because also what I love, the little humorous sections or the arbitrariness of, you know, you talk about what is a nose? Like, what is a mouth? Like, what are these kind of alien-like things on our bodies? And I love how you sort of say you know say hi to your face say hi to the world and suddenly it's like people do sort of invent this it's like this sprawling narrative that can stem from this artwork or this face in front of you yeah well I'm thinking now about the Russian formalist concept of making something strange and that's what this does it defamiliarizes the object when you sit for a long time with it 
Right. Because it defamiliarizes the object, you are seeing it in a completely different way. I mean, it's sort of like when you take a word like apple and you repeat it over and over again, apple, 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 and it just you know, it just yeah. starts becoming yeah. ludicrous, right? It starts becoming absurd. It loses its appleness, but it becomes <laughs> something else. And that's that's interesting. And I think that's what happens with, with this exercise too, you know, and, and certainly it's what happened with my nose. I mean, I, I sat there and was staring at my face for three hours and suddenly my nose became something that was not the nose that I was normally accustomed to glancing at quickly in the mirror as I was brushing my teeth, right? Yeah. It becomes something else. And then I, you know, was turning my head and realizing how much my nose had started to resemble my mother's nose. And then I kind of recognized it from pictures of my grandfather and started to see the difference between my memory of my grandfather's nose in photographs. And where did that come from? And started to think about that little cleft beneath the nose. It's called the Cupid's bow. But then I started to think like, what on earth is that for? Why did evolution give us this little dip there right underneath our nose to make us cuter? Why? It must serve a function, but what would that function be? And so this is what happens after three hours. Your mind starts to <laughs> you know, <laughs> cast about. But that idea of making something strange, I think is really important because it is so important in art making, right? It's what Emily Dickinson calls telling it slant, right? And that's what we as artists try to do, we try to portray the world in some way that is just a little bit slant so that, you know, readers or viewers can see the world with fresh eyes, right? Rather than the eyes of habituation. Yeah, totally, completely. And I love how, you know, you talk about your face having lots of people in it. I mean, it's a bit like a sort of Matryoshka doll or something. And, and this idea that it's, you know, this, this face within a face within a face within yeah. a face. And actually, that's what we have in artwork as well. You know, the artwork is just the sort of final image in a way. There's so much, you know, we're a seed within a seed within a seed. And that artwork, it was an idea in someone's head or it was a thought and actually it transpired into this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way you're describing that, of course, reminds me of the kind of mirroring again, to go back to this idea of all artwork is a collaboration, that art is a kind of mirror, too. And the term, right, this idea of infinite regression, right, the picture within the picture within the picture within the picture, right, that goes two mirrors facing each other, right. And it's terribly deep, spatially deep, right. And again, uncanny in a wonderful way. And also just the, the, the way that just to go back to the sort of arbitrariness of the sort of face as well, it really brought me back to people like Maria Lasnig, who sort of have these sort of body awareness paintings or, you know, people who paint the body. It is so strange, mm. you know, sort of transpose this oil paint or whatever medium you're using into something else that might be flat. It's really fascinating to sort of see your body reflected in a completely different sort of stretched or de-stretched way or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's really interesting too, because um, I'll just kind of take that and kind of look at it through a literary lens. You know, a lot of the work that I do I suppose people would call it autofiction. I'm talking now about the novels, not so much about yeah. the little memoir. But there's a there are autobiographical elements, of course, in my fiction. I think I would argue that there are autobiographical elements in anyone's fiction. Of course, what varies is how overt they are and how much the writer is willing to admit to it. But I mean, where else does fiction come from if not from one's own 
you know, one's own lived experience. Um, so I guess what I'm thinking about here is, for example, in my, in my third novel, A Tale for the Time Being, there's a character there named Ruth, right? And she's married to a man named Oliver. And not coincidentally, so am I. And so this is a character who is patently autobiographical, but that doesn't mean that she is me, right? And I think about the way visual artists, painters, for example, would have no problem, you know, painting a self-portrait and a viewer who is looking at a portrait, a self-portrait and the artist would have no trouble distinguishing between the two of them. One of them is a human being who's alive. The other one is a painting. It's a representation, yeah. right? But that distinction falls apart a little bit in writing because readers are very intent on seeing the character as the writer, right? And that always fascinates me uh, because, of course, the character is never the writer, you know? It's always a fiction. And I would say that that holds true for us too, you know, the, the human beings. I think that we are also stories that we tell ourselves and we tell others about ourselves, right? We're just these constantly evolving stories. We really are. Yeah. That's such a beautiful way to put it. And also, like you say, and I mentioned this earlier, you know, to see our reflections transformed. And I love at the end of Time Code of a Face, you talk about being on the subway and observing the mm -hmm. woman in front of you and sort of noticing that suddenly it's spring outside as well. And suddenly it's a bit like when we finish a novel or something, suddenly we see the world anew yeah. or we look at a piece of art and, and we're sort of reborn in a kind of strange way. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and that, that goes back to this idea of defamiliarization and estrangement, the idea that, yes, if you, that, that's what a work of art can do for us, right? That's what, that's what a work of art does is it, it wakes us up um, and, and makes us open our eyes and see the world through fresh eyes. Like meditation. Like meditation. Exactly. <laughs> like meditation. That's right. Spoken like a longtime meditator. <laughs> you can just skip, you can just skip the meditation part. <laughs> Amazing. Ruth Ezeki, I mean, I could ask you questions all day. You're totally amazing. But as is this the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests if there was a woman artist or woman writer from history who you'd most like to meet or who's inspired you most, who would it be and, and what would you say to them? Oh, my goodness. One? I only get one? No, no, no. You could, you could have multiple. Well, I mean, I'd be a little scared, but I would <laughs> choose the author of The Pillow Book. She was a courtier in the Heian period during the turn of the first millennium. And she was a contemporary of Murasaki Shikibu, the author of the tale of Genji. And so this was at a time of, of the great flourishing of Japanese literature, and particularly literature written by women. And Seishonhagon was really interesting. They, you know, she and uh, Murasaki Shikibu were, were contemporaries, but Seishonhagon was more of a documentarian. And the Pillow Book is just a record of all of the sort of court gossip and festivals and these weird little anecdotes and her opinions. She, she had, you know, she was tremendously opinionated, which is why I think it would be really frightening to meet her. In, in the pillow book, she wrote lists, right? And she wrote the most amazing lists. And I'll give you some of the titles. Lists of annoying things, deceptive things, embarrassing <laughs> things. Oh my right? God, I'd be terrified to meet I know. her. <laughs> things, things that give me an uncomfortable feeling, right? Squalid <laughs> things. 
things that have lost their power. We were talking about things, so this is interesting, right? Rare yeah. things, things that make the heart beat faster. Like that is so beautiful to me, right? If you set yeah. yourself the task of making a list of things that make the heart beat faster, you will start to notice when your heart is beating faster, right? So these taxonomies change the way that you experience the world. And if you only make lists of things that you have to do, then that's all you'll do, right? To-do lists. But if you make lists of things that make your heart beat faster, your heart will beat faster. And so I think this is really a beautiful notion. Um, and uh, Seishonagon was uh, the, sort of inspiration or not an inspiration exactly, but like the spirit guide for my first novel, My Year of Meats. And all of the, the chapters in there are named after the months that were used during the Heian court that uh, Seishonagon would have used. And all of the epigraphs are from her pillow book. I just think that uh, her way of experiencing the world, her criticality her connoisseurship was was very, very interesting. It would be terrifying to meet her because I'm sure she would just, I don't think she would approve of anything that I was doing. She would doing. love you. Yeah, she yeah, would yeah, love yeah. you. <laughs> Are there any others? Oh my gosh. I mean, I was thinking about this. I've been very influenced by Japanese literature and particularly older writers of the Heian period, but also later as well. And there were a group of women writers in the early 1900s. They called themselves the Blue Stocking Society, named after the Blue Stocking Society in England in the mid-1700s. But they were early feminists in, in Japan, writing you know, at the beginning of the Meiji period. And they were really quite radical. They were writing about oh gosh, about sexuality and about arranged marriage and arguing for the legalization of prostitution and abortion. And they were translating Emma Goldman into Japanese and they were very radical. They were being banned by the Japanese government. It was during this very brief period of liberalization that preceded World War II. And there's several of the women from that period, in particular, a woman named Yosano Akiko, who was a writer. She was the first person, for example, to translate the tale of Genji into contemporary Japanese. And she was the first editor of this magazine called Blue Stocking. And she was a real inspiration for the character of old Jiko. Old Jiko in Tale for the Time Being, you know, Old Jiko obviously wow. is a fiction, yeah. but Old Jiko was a friend of Yosano Akiko's and Old Jiko kind of lived at this period. And so Yosano Akiko appears at various times during the book. But just in any case, just to kind of, I, I would like to, you know, to be a fly on the wall at one of the editorial meetings of the Blue Stocking <laughs> magazine. Right? They were really persecuted, these women. One of them was murdered by the police. Another one was hanged. I mean, they, they were really persecuted, but they were a very interesting group of, of women. So yeah, that's what I'd like is to be a fly on the wall in one of their meetings. They were also, many of them were meditators. Um, oh my yeah, gosh. And they, they practiced Zen. So that was also interesting to me. Maybe you'd have to meditate with them. I would meditate with them. That would be great. That would be great. I would love to do that. Yeah, exactly. Amazing. Yeah. Ruth Azeki, thank you so much for this incredible conversation. You are fantastic. Thank uh, you. Thank you, Katie. This was so much fun. 
Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Woman Artist Podcast with the fantastic Ruth Ezeki. I am just in awe of her observations around looking, memoir and perception, and really urge you all to read both her fiction and non-fiction. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Michaela Carmichael. And if you have been enjoying this episode so far, I would be so grateful if you were to rate, review and subscribe as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artist Podcast with me, Katie. Hessel.